0: Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guests, yes, guests, plural, with an S, Gregory Eisline and Anne Phillips. Gregory Eisline has been the president of the Louisa May Alcott Society since 2020, and Anne Phillips was the president of the Louisa May Alcott Society from 2016 to 2020. They are both professors of English at Kansas State University. And together, they've edited the Louisa May Alcott Encyclopedia, the Norton Critical Edition of Alcott's Little Women, Critical Insights Little Women, and Critical Insights Louisa May Alcott. Basically, they are the dynamic duo of Alcott Scholarship, the peanut butter and jelly, the macaroni and cheese, the Lennon and McCartney. What an absolute honor to have the both of you here. And Greg, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing
1: great. glad so to be here.
0: Yes. I am so happy to have you. It is a real all-stars episode. Let me just ask you, we ask everybody who comes through, what is your relationship to little women? And do you want to go first and then Greg?
2: So I wrote my dissertation on books that my grandmothers had acquired and saved, and then, then they were passed down to me. I called it the Grandma Canon. And so that included writers like Jean Stratton-Porter and Jean Webster, but also very much Louisa May Alcott. And... I remember I was rarely ill as an elementary school student, but in fourth grade, I got some kind of pneumonia kind of infection and I was home for a couple of weeks and my mom just handed me her copy of Little Women and said, here, I think you'll like this. And that's been my life ever since. And I I didn't always understand everything in because it was books one and two put together. But, you know, it was fun as I grew up to revisit it and reread it and to go, oh, okay, I get that now. Or, okay, I understand that better. And I am about to enter a new decade of my life this fall. And I'm still rereading and finding new and exciting aspects of this novel.
0: Wow. So a full and a whole life with Louisa May Alcott. I love that. Greg, what about you? What's your relationship to Little Women?
1: So I never read Alcott as a child. In fact, I read very little fiction when I was before my junior year of high school. And I remember being an exchange student and I was reading some book on ancient archaeology in my room and my host mom, and she comes by and she says, don't you ever read any fiction? And I thought to myself, no, I never have. So I went to the library that same day and talked to the librarian about some novels I could read. It was not Little Women. She handed me Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Grapes of Wrath. But when I was in graduate school, it was a seminar on 19th century American lit and culture. And it was early in the semester. And as we were going to go around the room, we had to pick one of the texts and the texts that were available. And I was like, I really wanted to do Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And the teacher, I was sitting right next to the teacher, and I thought, for sure, like, I get to choose first, I'm going to go. She went the opposite direction. So when it came to me, there was only one text left, and it was Louisa May Alcott's Hospital Sketches. And I was left disappointed, but I actually realized it's one of those wonderful things that happen in my life, because after I read Hospital Sketches, I got incredibly excited about Alcott's work in general, including Little Women, and continued to read her, and you know realized what a great writer she she was.
0: That is just such a pure twist of fate. It was you know some people are born reading Louisa May Alcott, some people have Louisa May Alcott thrust upon them or assigned them in college classes, and it it sounds like it really just altered the course of your entire life. That's fascinating.
1: If it were up to me, I would have made a different decision, but because it wasn't up to me, it made this decision for me that ended up being great.
0: So thank you, Fates. <laughs> and now, Anne, which March sister are you? And for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister.
2: Fifth sister is what we've called him for many years. So here's my problem. I am all of them.
0: Ooh, okay.
2: But I want to just say, Greg and I got to co-teach an Alcott graduate course in the fall of 2018 as part of the Sesco Centennial of Little Women. And we went around the room and asked all of our students, you know, which one are you? And it was so interesting because there were not as many Joes as I thought there would be. There were some Amys. There were a lot of Beths and some Megs. And the thing about this book is I know women of a previous scholarly generation, Elizabeth Kaiser among them, who have told me that they read this novel and really saw themselves as Meg because that's what their lives were shaped up to be, Right. And, and then sort of just slightly after my generation, I'm the tail end of the baby boom. Even just those who were born 10 years later often sees on Amy as like, she's the feminist ideal in some ways. She's the girl who knows what she wants and she goes and she gets it. So she had kind of a little boom there, 80s into 90s. And I'm finding over and over that Beth has come into her own in the 21st century. And I think a lot of it Greg's heard this a million times, but I think it's about her mental health struggles. She talks about her anxiety and why she just finally decided to be homeschooled rather than have to deal with the anxiety of going to school. I don't know if you've watched the March Family Letters, the multimodal online. It's fantastic. And Beth really resonated with the viewers and the audience for that adaptation part of it was that you got to see her have her panic attack on camera and then see her pull herself back and learn and grow a lot of her blogs and her Facebook posts and her tweets and things for that adaptation got reblogged so it just it's so interesting and some of our students would say Oh, she's the heart of the home, and I really respect that. She's kind. She's loving. Sometimes she's all those things I wish I could be. It was really interesting, but I think that's why this book endures, is that it speaks to people for different reasons at different times, but there's always something for someone there.
0: That is so fascinating. I never heard that before, but it makes so much sense that every generation has its March sister. And we are living in Generation Beth. That absolutely resonates. I find, and I'll ask you in a minute, Greg, but I was expecting at the outset for everyone to say Joe and up to now my guests have been about half Joe or about like half of all my guests are Joe's but the remaining half is quite evenly split among the sisters and I often find that I think someone's going to be an Amy and they're going to be a Beth or I think someone's going to be a Beth and they're going to be an Amy those are which you think are not easy to mix up but the two polar opposites often seem to mingle in an interesting way. So um, that's fascinating. And I am excited to get into the generational differences. Greg, which March sister are you?
1: It's Joe and always has been Joe, always will be Joe. I can't imagine anything but Joe. In fact, I remember this conversation with Anne, I think it was in 93 or 94, our first year teaching at Kansas State University. We were talking about this And I think I was talking about identification and little women and Joe is the kind of center of the book and how everybody identifies with Joe. And I think at the time, Anne hinted to me that I don't know that everybody identifies with Joe. And it was like one of those moments where I didn't, I couldn't understand. What do you mean? Nobody identifies with Meg. And Anne was like, I think some readers do. And it befuddled me for a while because... I didn't understand how you could read the book and not identify with Joe and not see her as the center of everything that was happening. And it took not just a moment of like realizing, oh, but I think was this you? And somebody pointed out to me that, well, writers, of course they're gonna identify with Joe. Intellectuals, people who like to talk about ideas readers who love to read, people who love to lock themselves up in the garret for reading or writing, of course, they're going to identify with Joe. That makes sense. And so if you're going to go to other academics, chances are you're going to hear a lot of Joe, but that among all the readers out there, no way. And I sound stupid. It sounds like I was just an idiot for not realizing that different readers identify differently, but it really, it took me a while to realize that there was that kind of range. I get it now fully, everything Anne just said, I agree with, but that's not how I first read this book.
2: Can I just say that I think there are a lot of readers that find themselves in Laurie as well? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. and One of the things that, especially as I grew older, I really began to appreciate was the intense pressure that is often placed on men to step into their family, to go into business, and that they often have artistic stirrings and they would like to follow that sort of vocation. And Laurie grapples with all of that in his journey. It's a rich journey, even if it's a little bit different than some of the other journeys, but he's right in there with them all in terms of his love for an art and his, you know, ambitions for that art and having to come to terms with talent isn't genius. You know, that's certainly true for him as well. So I think he, he belongs in our smack in the middle of that conversation.
0: Yes, absolutely. He does. We, Just did the Castles in the Air chapter, and Laurie is right there imagining his own castle in the air. I think it's so important that we just understand Laurie as someone who like desperately wants to belong, not just to the March family, but to this world of women more generally. I think that's a really special and rare thing, not just in literature from this era, but period. So we love Laurie. Laurie is a March sister. Aunt March is perhaps a March sister as well. We can debate that, but she looms large in this chapter in... Chapter 19, Amy's Will, as does Lori. It's a very, it's a three hander.
2: <laughs> or if we count the parrot who has some of the best lines in the
0: chapter. Yeah, we absolutely 100% stand, Polly. <laughs> Would either of you like to just break down, give us a rapid recap?
1: <laughs> so this is chapter 19, Amy's mm-hmm. Will. Amy has been shipped off to stay with Aunt March because Beth is ill. This is Beth's first round of illness the other girls and the other members of the family have already had scarlet fever but Amy has not and so they're eager to make sure she's not exposed and that she can stay safe I just saying that I I reminded how irrelevant it feels in the age of covid to read again about this but yeah she's being sent off to Aunt March Aunt March is wealthy she has a, a servant Esther a French a maid. Aunt March's house is filled with all kinds of nice things. And Esther is a Roman Catholic. And Amy, who's used to being surrounded by sisters all the time, is now by herself. She's got a couple of older adult women, but they're not fun like Joe and Lori. They're different. And Amy, thinking about her sister who's sick and Might die, starts thinking about sickness and death and ultimate issues in her own Amy way. She draws up a will. She may or may not officially convert to Roman Catholicism, not sure, but she becomes super interested in the rituals and draws up her will and feels better about it. And at the end, she agonizes about the turquoise ring. And then, but toward the end, she sincerely kind of realizes that. Her sister matters more to her than all these material things she matters about. What did I leave out, Anne?
2: The ring is supposed to be a present from Aunt March when Amy goes home if she's behaved herself and been a good girl while she was there. So, she, you know, it's part material girl, part what's who's that core Amy and what's she going to grow into? And I think it lays very nice groundwork for some of her chapters in the second part of the novel. There's a core there that is not just a material girl. I'm always interested in little issues like what's the book that Marmy gives the girls? Is it Pilgrim's Progress? Is it the New Testament? And just the way that that described like the way she sets up her little chapel in this book makes me Mm -hmm. absolutely convinced that it's the New Testament. The story of the best life ever lived is the line. But as I've written on occasion, I'm really interested in the way that Alcott's, she's never going to be the Orthodox Christian, but she's not willing to let go of Christianity either. And I love the way that this little... Prayer room that's set up for Amy and that she uses has the picture of the Madonna there, and that it's a female centered religion and spirituality mm-hmm. rather than a traditional Orthodox
0: Christianity. Yeah, that is such a good point about the Madonna and just the recentering of women. Even in Amy's prayers. And I can imagine, actually, like Alcott and religion is on my mind. I'm reading a modern me- Mephistopheles right now for the very first time. And there is a long digression in that short story about Buddhism, which shows that Alcott had really done her homework and was like curious, maybe even a proponent who can say. So I'm very curious to talk about the way that Alcott viewed religion rejected orthodoxy ran into problems with the christian union of her day greg do you have any thoughts on the way that that alcott renders or reimagines religion in this chapter
1: yeah i think what's interesting is that she's from protestant conquered boston uh comes from a tradition that like goes back to the puritans it's kind of calvinism it's changed a lot by the time it gets to Louisa May Alcott, but it's heavily influenced by Transcendentalism. But within it, there's a lot of anti-Catholic rhetoric that's just goes about as common sense, everyday discourse. But if you look at it now, it's kind of shocking, and it's the amount of prejudice. And I don't see that here. I mean, it's not that Alcott was completely devoid Of some of the biases of her day, but here she's not. Maybe there's a little bit of poking fun at the visual elements, but I think it's more pointing to her own Protestant background where the visual and the female were radically excluded. And here they're included For Amy, and and honestly, I, I take it very seriously, I think what's going on here is that Amy's starting to realize something spiritually because they're presented this way, because they are visual, because the theology has changed a little, not that Amy's too into theology, but yeah, I think her, Alcott's tolerance, her religious tolerance, her interest In a lot of different beliefs, but her lack of dogma about any of them, I think that shines through. And I think it's true of her and a lot of the transcendentalists of the time.
2: I want to give a shout out to two scholars who have written relevant pieces for this conversation. And one of them is Monica Elbert who's written about Alcott and Catholicism and, in Mm -hmm. fact, wrote the blog entry for our Little Women 150 blog on Chapter 19. So she's wonderful, and you should check out her work. But also, one of our former students, Mo Lee, has written about religion in Eight Cousins and Rosenblum. And I think what she has to say about how Alcott uses religious references is relevant to all of Alcott's work, and it's beautifully done and delightful. So... Put those on your reading list.
0: I absolutely will. I, I, I can probably even put them in the show notes. So uh, have a look in the show notes while you're listening to this in the future. We'll see what we can link up in there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there's something so compelling about the religious tolerance, the pluralism, just the openness to other people's experiences of religion that Alcott demonstrates here. There isn't any aversion to someone doing something the wrong way. I mean, I, I did just mention a modern Mephistopheles. There's a scene a long sequence in that short story where the main character is looking over ornately carved statues of Hindu gods with a real openness and curiosity. There doesn't seem to be any bias or fear that these are pagan or whatever. And then there's a long discussion of the merits of Buddhism and the overlap between Buddhism and Christianity and what people who practice Buddhism get from it. It's just so interesting that Alcott was open to those possibilities and from pulling from those traditions in a way that feels very modern. I mean, there is one thing, we have to mention it, that is not very modern. I I did have a moment where we were reading about Estelle, who changed her name to Esther on the condition that she was never asked to change her religion. And that, I thought, Esther? Judaism? And it was not the case. Esther's a Roman Catholic. But there's some unfortunate anti-Semitism in Little Women. It's it's just one thing that I have to highlight it every time it comes up because it's, it's a frustrating bit of this book that it does veer into the bigotry and that kind of open tolerance for Hinduism and Buddhism and Catholicism and all these different religious traditions could exist and somehow this still disdain for Judaism, which is frustrating. It's not super relevant to the chapter, but I feel like it always bears mentioning
1: Peyton, I think one thing that is interesting is that Anne knows this well, but the bigotry that shocks a lot of readers is her anti-Irish mm. sentiment, which occurs a lot because often in, not just in Louisa Mailcott, but in other 19th century novelists, the servants are often Irish. And here, I think maybe to make Estelle slash Esther a little more likable, doesn't make her a, or maybe a little more high class, I guess, that rich Aunt March can afford a French maid as opposed to an Irish maid. But I think that's an interesting shift here. There's not a lot of French characters in the March family trilogy, the Little Women, A Little Men and Joe's Boys. And it's just interesting that there is one here.
0: Yes, and she is very French. She comes in like a French Catholic hurricane, just, you know, changing the shape of the chapter around her and kind of opening up Amy to a world beyond what she knows. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, maybe what we're seeing here is foreshadowing of Amy's eventual trip to Europe and her own galliances with French and the Indian cabinet full of antiquities. So... I think it's an interesting look ahead to Amy's kind of very international cosmopolitan future as well. It's interesting to see. I want to finish
2: a thought from the last part of the previous conversation, and that is that Alcott is, of course, drawing on her experience in Europe as the companion in 1865-66, and so I
0: see threads coming from there in this chapter. Yeah, that kind of maybe brings us to this discussion of Amy's dabbling in not just the jewel case that Aunt March has, but also her costuming. <laughs> because there's a whole closet. Oh my goodness, I want to get this right. One of the large chambers in this room, there was a wardrobe full of old-fashioned costumes with which Esther allowed Amy to play, and it was her favorite amusement to array her and herself in the faded brocades and parade up and down before the long mirror, making stately courtesies and sweeping her train about with a rustle which delighted her ears. And then costume in which lori finds her is a great pink turban she's flirting with a fan tossing her head a pink turban which contrasted oddly with her blue brocade dress and yellow quilted petticoat she has on high-heeled shoes she is just a picture of splendor what do you guys make of this sequence
2: Uh, you know, as I was rereading it and thinking about it, I was like, oh, this makes me want to go read Eight Cousins again, because there's the same sort of great big house that's just full of wonderful cupboards and artifacts. And there's the Ant Hill is the subtitle for that book and the range of ants with all of their eccentricities and interests. There's also the dress reform aspect of Eight Mm -hmm. Cousins. And certainly here you see an interest in trying on different costumes and performing different kinds of femininity. And she hasn't got her palette down yet. And she's just, you know, in in an excess or an orgy of dress up and having fun and the parrots mocking her and sidling along. And, you know, it's wonderful Alcott comedy going on here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Greg, do you have any any thoughts about the costume drama of it all?
1: I do think it's part of it is another Alcott theme of children at play, that Amy's playing dress-up, but the play is always in some ways serious, that Amy's practicing on being an adult, and in some ways, she's the one sister who manages to figure out how to perform or play the feminine adult as a grown-up, and here she's trying to do it as a kid. In a way that Joe's choices in terms of dress-up are very different. And It's boots, you know, for instance, rather than pink turban, turquoise ring, and other costuming here. I guess what the other thing I would say is that it's hilarious. It's comedy, particularly in volume one. We all laugh at Amy because she's the littlest one, and she does things wrong, and it's hilarious. But what I guess I want to say, and one of the reasons I love this chapter so much is I think it's super serious. She's being all materialistic and loving all the splendor of the Aunt March wardrobe, but it's also the moment where she's coming in touch with her own spiritual beliefs that transcend the material world. The dress-up is play, but she's practicing to be an adult, and as we all know, she ends up being in some ways the most responsible and serious of the grown-up marches. The will. I mean, it's a hilarious will, right? And she gets it wrong and it's not quite what a will should be. But what other of the kids is thinking about financial document instruments that they should be attending to? Amy is. And I think it foreshadows the grown-up Amy, who is the only one who seems to be paying attention to issues of finance and what you need to do to be economically secure.
2: And the Greta Gerwig film clearly picks up on that. And the most well-known line that Amy gets to say in that film was actually coined by Meryl Streep who wanted her to say that. And so that's how it made its way into the film, but that's clearly influenced their interpretation of her character. I want to go back for just a minute though, and think about the fan play and the importance mm-hmm. of a particular kind of femininity, but that's an artificiality. And even though she's practicing it, and even though she can ply that when she becomes older, what you see with Amy is a, a winnowing process of getting rid of that artifice and becoming more simply and really herself in the course of part two. And of course, she's off stage after that for the most part in the trilogy. And I think that it's a face that she tries on, but it is not who she truly is. And so this play is really important for her. But she's going to do something other than this as a mature young woman.
0: Yeah, I think that's it's such a fascinating discussion because it really is like this silly childhood comedy but it's also in a very real way foreshadowing not just Amy's future but also her future with Laurie because it's it feels significant that Laurie is the witness. Laurie is the one who's enchanted by this. And obviously it's too early for there to be any real hint of like romantic passion <laughs> right between these two characters. Like they're both still very young, that's not on their minds, but I think it's interesting, especially in the context of something that we, I spoke about in my episode with Andy Schwartz, the concept of high femme camp antics. Have either of you read that essay? It's by Jenny Fran Davis. Who wrote this essay, High Femme Camp Antics? And I'm just gonna read a passage from it here. In 1925, the psychologist Winifred Richmond declared that feminine lesbians seek mother love, crave affection and attention, and are obsessed with beauty. Where's the lie? I joked to a friend when I read that description. I know that lesbians, particularly femmes, have long defended themselves against charges of immaturity, childishness, and narcissism, which every Amy <laughs> has to defend against, right? Like those are certainly charges lobbyists, Amy. And I know that we've long been pathologized as stunted, inverted, and backwards. I also know that Richmond's statement does sort of describe me as much as I wish it didn't. So I think it's interesting to think here about Amy in the context of queer femme and like femme gender and the, and I'm just being too much, too feminine because what we get here isn't like Meg's tasteful, practiced femininity. It is like a pink turban, a parrot saying ain't we fine hold your tongue kiss me there it is just ooh la la too much i was wondering do any of you have have thoughts about that and maybe as reading amy as femme in that way
1: so i mean i think it's not inappropriate to call amy high femme but what's interesting there and i think what Anne just alluded to that's so important is that there's a way in which amy's femme identity is artificial and deeply authentic at the same time. And I don't know if I'm the person to tease that it all out or explain it right here, but that's what's going on, right? That she's both practicing feminine identity as she understands it, trying to figure out what it is, what are the rituals, what is the costume, how do I perform this? Which reminds you, it's not a natural identity, right? That it's something that she has to learn how to perform and she is trying to learn it. On the other hand. Amy is clearly drawn to it. I mean, this this is who she wants to be. This feels like the authentic self for her in a way that what Meg is doing or Joe is doing doesn't seem right or real for her at all.
2: I'm also thinking about when Meg goes to Vanity Fair and they dress her up, and that's an even higher them in some ways and she's experimenting with it and she comes away from that experience with there are things she liked about it and things she really didn't like about that and you know having to sort all of that out and meg and amy are the sort of pair that have more in common and joe and beth are the pair that have sympathetic characters and and joe would never care about any of this unless she could put on her russet boots and play all of the male parts in the play but both meg and amy are trying on these Aspects of what it means to be feminine and experimenting and finding their way in the midst of all of their choices.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up Meg goes to Vanity Fair because Meg's relationship to femininity in that chapter is torture. She is, <laughs> she goes to this party and comes home and. Delivers a lecture about how it's wrong to enjoy things and have fun. <laughs> right, I'm oversimplifying, but Meg does not really get to have the same kind of easy, carefree enjoyment of like over the top femininity that even Amy has here, which is really interesting to note. Like reading this paragraph about Amy flirting her fan and tossing her head and walking carefully on the high heeled shoes with Polly fluttering behind her. I mean I'm thinking of the conversations surrounding RuPaul's drag grace and their casting now of cisgender women as drag queens on the show. And like, hold on, I thought a drag queen was one very specific thing. How can a cisgender born woman be a drag queen? That doesn't make sense. And yet I think that's what Amy is doing more than anything. Like it's it feels like a form of drag. I don't know if you you two agree.
2: I could absolutely see that with the turban. I don't know what it is about the turban detail, but in the colors and the parrot, parrot fits in with
1: this.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: On the vanity fair. I mean, I know it's all girls and you know, some of them are what we might call today, mean girls, right? They're not overtly mean, but they're snobby. And I guess the way I read both of that is, is just to this reminder not to dissociate those feminine identity categories from issues of money and, and class. And I think the reason it sits so badly for Meg is that she realizes that those individuals who conform their identity to this archetype of feminine identity through the masculine gaze that might get you that rich husband that, you know, she fantasizes at one point during this early in volume one about being wealthy. But I think she starts to realize in that book that, oh my gosh, if you become that, you're this object. And if you marry rich, you have given up part of yourself and maybe you get luxury or maybe you don't. But it's a more dangerous world than you might imagine, and that it's much safer to be in control of yourself, kind of transcendentalist gospel 101, than to try to become something somebody else wants you to be, so you can be part of the big marriage market. Amy, on the other hand, seems to be aware of what's involved, including, I think it's why Laurie becomes her romantic object eventually, is that if you're going to do that masculine-feminine thing, especially if it's going to involve money, you better be thoughtful. And maybe it includes wills, maybe it includes marrying somebody you love and trust rather than whoever wants to buy you because you're all dolled up.
2: So one of the most poignant passages in the whole novel, in my opinion, is the comment in book two about how Sally Gardner has married Ned Moffat. And how lonely she is. And what an empty life it is. And how there's no riotous, rosy-faced babies in her life. And it's a very empty mansion. And Ned lives in his own life. And she has pretty much nothing. And she hasn't been protected or given the safe space that the March sisters have been given. And she's not a mean girl. And it's just so sad that's how her life ends up.
0: I absolutely agree. I think, to just echo what both of you are saying, I think what we see here. Just in this very brief scene with Amy and Laurie is a future where the two of them can have fun together, unburdened from all of the expectations that are placed on male-female couples of that day. I think because there's maybe an acknowledgement of the artifice of the whole thing. I don't know if, if either of you agree. Or like the performance of it all. And there's an ability to laugh about it too and to not take it quite so seriously. Maybe it just comes from having known each other for such a long time. Maybe it just become, comes from the kind of safety that they can offer each other. It's notable that like Amy is embarrassed when Laurie walks in on her. It's noticed also that Laurie restrains with difficulty an explosion of merriment lest it should offend her majesty, right? He doesn't want to hurt her feelings. He really wants her to just soak this up without being embarrassed. It's an improvement from Laurie's attitude in Meg Goes to Vanity Fair, what we see here. I do have difficulty fully getting on board with Amy and Lori, but this kind of offers me a peek into the dimension of it I most love, which is just this very wholehearted femme for femme, anything goes mentality. And maybe that can give us some insight into why it is Lori whom she chooses to confide in this sacred document of her last will and testament. (laughs) What do you make of the last will and testament of Amy Curtis March?
1: Yeah, I love it, misspellings and all. In terms of it makes sense to me, Laurie starting to take on this role of fifth sister, but as the fifth sister, he's the financially responsible one and a kind of knight in shining armor, right? He's around to to help when he's needed most. He obviously gets a lot out of it, right? That he's got friends and I think in this section, you see him become part of the family, and, and it's heard me talk about this, but I think within Alcott's works, you only become marriageable if you're actually part of the family in some way, that you don't marry outside the family because it's too strange, they're too dangerous, and so he's becoming a part of the family. But the other thing about Laurie in this Will that I love is she bequeaths him her paper mache collection you know ha 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 like you know, who wants a bunch of 12 year olds paper mache like nobody but she sees herself like laurie as an artist that they're both artists in a way that they've got these temperaments so she thinks of him as somebody who would appreciate and recognize the greatness of her artwork in the way that nobody else would that's one thing i think of it Uh, The other thing I guess I would say is that throughout it, she seems to be thinking very carefully about what material object to give to whom. And that's all very revealing about her personality. And the range, okay, that's the other thing. The range, she seems to have a whole social network of people that she needs to give various items to in a way that like a Beth or a Joe doesn't, they don't have such extensive social networks.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Right after Amy's very detailed last will and testament, Laurie notes that Beth has done something similar. (laughs) She felt so ill one day that she told Joe she wanted to give her piano to Meg, her bird to you, and the poor old doll to Joe who would love it for her sake. She was sorry she had so little to give and left lots of hair to the rest of us and her best love to grandpa. Which is in marked contrast to Amy's incredibly detailed line item, Will, just like, this ring goes to this person, and this apron goes to my friend from school. And what do you make of—what can we read into the contrast between Amy and Beth?
2: Well, I want to talk about what Amy wants to leave to Joe. So I in previous weeks of conversations about these chapters, I know that you and a guest have talked a little bit about the way that Louisa is representing her sister May in this character Amy and, you know, how outraged about it May probably was— but I think they're both very well-rounded characters and I am deeply amused that she says to Joe I leave my breast pin the one mended with sealing wax also my bronze inkstand she lost the cover and my most precious plaster rabbit because I am sorry I burned up her story. And it's just that rivalry and the issues and the whole thing about she's going to leave her a breast pin that's been mended, which actually totally fits with everything about Joe. If you think about her singed dresses and, you know, only one glove and, you know, all of that stuff. And then my bronze inkstand, she lost the cover, the little passive aggressive <laughs> right in the middle of the <laughs> wrap. And I want to tell a quick story about Orchard House and Jan Turquist, because the Alcott Society had their 10th anniversary celebration in 2015 that turned out to be a champagne reception on the lawn at Orchard House, which is never going to happen again, probably in my life. Maybe it will, and I'll be thrilled if it does. But it was just this epically wonderful afternoon. And I got to knock on the front door of Orchard House, which they don't even open on a regular basis. And Louisa herself, Jan Turquist, opened the door and invited us in and talked to us. And then they split us into two tours. And she took our tour through and, of course, stayed in character for the entire tour. And these are Alcott scholars, and they know all the dirt on the family. And we were having so much fun. And I will admit that what I asked Louisa as she took us through the house was, so how do you really feel about your youngest sister? And she stopped, and she looked, and she twinkled, and she stayed in character, but it was fun. So those sisters, we're never tired of stories about them.
0: Yes, and there is a bearing of the hatchet here, in this will... I am sorry I burnt up her story, she says. She's sorry that she made fun of Beth's doll. She can't resist getting in a little crack at Lori. She says, I leave him my clay model of a horse, though he did say it had not any neck. She's like, I'm always watching. I've forgotten your insults. It's-
2: and, you know, one of my very favorite sequences about Amy in the whole book comes in book two, so I know we're trampling on somebody else's space here, but at the Chester's fair, when they eject her from the art table and send her off to the flower table and just the genuine way that she tries to make peace and give everyone her best self, even though it takes time and thought and effort. And I see the beginnings of the Amy that she will become in this will and the distribution of her things. And I'm sorry, I did this and I'm sorry about that. And, you know, there's going to be an amazing woman in that Somewhat silly girl.
1: I agree with that, Anne. And I think this is a kind of pivotal chapter for under the chapter 19, Amy's Will, for understanding Amy's development. And Peyton, I think the connection with Beth's non will is Alcott's trying to remind us that though these two sisters are very different from each other, that what's going on here, it can seem wrongly official and too much and very materialistic in a lot of ways, but really Alcott's showing us she's trying to do exactly what Beth has done, which is show Amy's thoughtfulness, how she's thinking of each of these individuals in her life, and also trying to establish some kind of connection with them after death in the same way that Beth is, thinking about people who will survive her.
0: Yeah, because this is really a moment of comic relief and it does end on a very sad note, right? We're barely past the high femme camp antics drag and the parade and the parrot and the hilarious misspelled will before. We finally land on, she whispers with trembling lips, is there really any danger about Beth? And Laurie says, I'm afraid there is, but we must hope for the best, so don't cry, dear. Puts his arm around her with a brotherly gesture and then Amy goes to her little chapel prays for Beth with streaming tears and an aching heart, feeling that a million turquoise rings would not console her for the loss of her gentle little sister. So it's a reminder of just how high the stakes are. We're given this moment of levity from Amy, but she's not immune to feeling, which is, yeah. And and the thing is that
2: at the very end of the previous chapter, we know that the fever has turned. We know that Beth's sleeping naturally and Marmy's home and it's going to be okay. And so that gives Alcott the space to be more comedic in this chapter, given the time shift from that moment where Beth is turned and is sleeping easily to to this chapter where Amy is coping with all of her life. The proximity of those two chapters, the way that previous chapter ends, enables what happens in this chapter. And I'm also struck by the fact that in the previous chapter, Laurie has the moment where he gets to tell Joe that he's already sent for their mother and that she'll be there. And she flies at him and he hugs her and then he kisses her. And he gets that moment with her. And then he gets this moment with Amy here. And just the way even in those two chapters long before part two was written, it's there. That dynamic is all there.
0: Yes. I mean, Lori is just so fully integrated into this family at this point. He is truly a fifth sister and he's fully part of the family. And that's a statement even just about found family and how blood relations, which were clearly important and are such an important part of this. I mean, they are the story, but it's also that people who are not your blood relations can be welcomed into your family and loved like your family, right? Even loved like a sister if they are born a boy or something like that. I think it's so beautiful. Even though this is probably like about as comedic as Little Women gets, and it's still grounded in such this, this firm, solemn foundation, which I really appreciate.
1: And Peyton, you're reading this chapter the way that I do. And I think it's one of the funniest chapters in all. Amy is a source of a lot of comedy in volume one. But yeah, let's not pass over too quickly how profoundly scary and sad. I mean, imagine being a, a little kid and your sister could be dying, how that might affect you. And I think when I read this ending, I think of, so William James has this great book called Varieties of Religious Experience, and he's got a pair of chapters or figures that he talks about. One is healthy-minded religion, and his great example is Walt Whitman, and you can think of, and Whitman is the best example of this, and the Transcendentalists, and Joe, you know, that God is kind of everywhere, out in nature, and, but there's this other kind of religion, what, James calls the sick soul. And it's not necessarily negative, but it's somebody who's so profoundly, tragically broken that their prayer is help. And this is where Amy is at the end of this, that she's like, help me, God, my sister is sick. And she doesn't even know the right words to say, so she she cries instead. I just think that's so interesting what Alcott has done with us, has made us laugh and we've all made fun of Amy, and then here she is at the end of this chapter praying to God because their sister might die. That amount of drama in one little chapter, I think it's one of the things that makes Alcott such a great artist.
0: Yeah, no, truly. I mean, the gift for plotting and pacing and just balancing of the emotions is something like, I'm trying to take these chapters apart like a clock and study them to like see how she does it. I don't know that it's replicated even in her short fiction, which we know that she was more passionate about writing, which is interesting. Just this really precise balance. And maybe the last question while I have you here, and like this is me fully like asking the experts here. And we know that in the real Elizabeth March, Elizabeth Alcott did not survive her illness. And I'm just wondering, we we know that Beth does to come in the second half of this book, but she makes it to the end of the first, the original which was a fully envisioned work. There was not originally supposed to be a part two. Beth makes it to the end of this book alive. And I was just wondering if you had any insight into why Alcott might have made that decision. Why might she have chosen to allow her fictional Elizabeth to live, at least at first?
1: Great question. I think because the volume one, I love both volumes, right? But one of the great things about volume one is it's this self-contained year, right? It's a, it takes you through the course of a year and the reunion of the family at the end with Mr. March. And I know he's, you know, people talk about how he's absent, but when Beth and Mr. March and Amy and everybody's there together at the end, as opposed to the beginning when it's Mr. March is physically absent and it's the four girls and Marmy. I mean, I think it's supposed to be that. And so I don't think you can take Beth out in volume one and have it be that narrative of family reunion. Volume two ends very differently and I'm not going to go into it, but I don't think it it kind of is a family reunion. They're there with Marmy, but it's also harvest time. It's where everything starts to die. And-,
2: it, and we've talked about it. It's ascending the girls out into the world and letting them start to find their own way beyond the confines of the home, the little brown house. And even with Beth, I mean, she also leaves the home. And we have this sense of Beth that she's such a homebody and she's too shy. And nobody knows her. But, you know, even in the previous chapter about her profound illness, It talks about how all of the milkman and the grocery boy and all of these people inquired about her and that she'd made connections with all of them while she was doing the marketing and other things. But even she has to, even if it's going to the seashore, it's, and it's, that's a metaphor too, for, you know, having to Mm -hmm. find her own way on her own schedule. But book one is about, and people say, oh, Alcott really didn't want to write it, blah, blah, blah. And it's true that she was resistant to the idea. But she asked her family for their permission to write about them, and they said yes, and she got really excited about it. And If you track her journal comments as she was working on this manuscript, she got more and more excited about what she was doing with it and more confident with it. And I think it became sort of a love letter to her family, and that's why I think you have to have them all alive and together at the end of this book to complete what she found herself falling into with this project.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for your insight on that. That is maybe my biggest unanswered question about little women. And like I said, I am so grateful to have two scholars of your stature and your experience on this show. It really is a pleasure and an honor. I'm going to let you go. I don't want to keep you here for too long, but Anne, Gregory, where can people find you online? Where can they purchase and read your books? I'm sure that many people will be curious to get into your catalog.
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Greg Eyesline. Also, I would encourage people to check out the Louisa May Alcott Society site. It's just louisamayalcottsociety.org. There's lots of information there about how to join the organization, how to get involved, projects that we're working on, panels that we're organizing, and a bunch of resources.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I am a proud member of the Louise May Alcott Society here. You should join up and get on the list, sir, because it's just an incredible community of people who are just as obsessed as you and I and all of us are, if you're listening to the podcast.
2: We celebrate Louisa's birthday towards the end of November. We pick a Sunday and we'll have more information about that event, but we're doing it again this year. And we've had dozens of people turn out for those events the last couple of years. And certainly COVID and work conditions under COVID have enabled us to develop some new outreach on behalf of Alcott and her works. And so we hope we'll bring some more people to that this year.
0: Amazing. Well, I mean, I am certainly looking forward to the Louisa May Alcott birthday party. How many years old is she turning this year?
1: It's one hundred and ninety.
0: Wow, one hundred and ninety. She's a grand old dame. I love it. Well, again, Ann, Greg, thank you so much for being here today. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca or on Twitter at Peytonology. And you can buy my book, Both Sides, now wherever fine books are sold. If you are enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell your friends, drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen, and tune in next week. Again, thank you so much, Ann and Greg. This is Joe and I signing off.
1: This was a blast. Thank you.